This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Ringgit and Cents on BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning and welcome to Ringgit and Cents, the show that's all about personal finance. I'm Roshan Kanesin. Now, long-term investors like to buy and hold, but for how long? And with the current stock market valuations bringing back dot-com parallels, some are worried that the next bubble pop could be just around the corner. So today, we'll dive into how to invest for the long-term and not just surviving the bubbles that we will encounter, but also thriving regardless of where the markets are heading or how volatile things will get. And to help me with this, I'm speaking with Jack Kuzi, fund manager with VFS Group. Jack, welcome to Ring In Sense. Thank you for having me. It's uh, it's an honor to be on and I'm really can't wait to get into what a great topic uh, we're going to talk through today. Yeah, uh, this should be fun. Um, sure. The concept of buy and hold is a simple one, but it can go incredibly wrong as investors of Enron or Blockbuster would know. Uh, both these companies, um, Enron, well, Enron collapsed in the 90s and Blockbuster was once the king of video until yeah. it, well, didn't adapt to the times and died off. I think there's only one Blockbuster left and that is in California. And also this kind of brings up parallels of Kodak and other big companies companies like BlackBerry as well. So when we take a look at the buy and hold uh, environment, I guess, Jack, what are the key do's and don'ts so that we don't end up with big losers? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think, you know, talking about the Enrons and the blockbusters of the world are a really good reminder to investors out there that a simple buy and hold strategy doesn't essentially work on its own. And we often hear from people like myself and yourself and experts around the world about, you know, don't time the market. It's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. And I believe that essentially, I think that is a great investing philosophy, but what we also must understand is that when we're buying stocks or investing, we're holding an asset class. And the key to returns is being in the right asset classes. And I think that is the fundamental question that an investor must answer am I in the right asset class or in the right stocks? I think with a buy and hold strategy in particular, one of the most overused words we have in investing is diversification, but it's very prudent. If you only held Blockbuster, then you would be in trouble. But if you would hold multiple stocks, then you probably would have done well over the last 15 or 20 years or whatever your timeframe out there it is. So the asset class is really important. When you're looking at the buy and hold strategy, and the time in the market strategy, I think a great way of looking at it is, well, how do I get really diversified, stay liquid and can get into asset classes? And and the beauty about what we have in terms of investing in a global world is we can access access these asset classes really easily and cheaply. So ETFs are a great way to buy and hold. And for the listeners out there who don't know what ETFs are, They stand for exchange traded funds and they simply track a basket of goods. Now there are ETFs on everything, but you can buy an ETF on broad based exchanges. You know, Buffett always says buying the S&P 500 is a great way of investing. And you can now do that really easily with a simple cheap ETF. And what that ETF does is it tracks the S&P 500 if that's the one you buy. Now you can buy one on the NASDAQ, on the Kuala Lumpur exchange, the Malaysian, you can track that. So there are a number of exchanges or even themes or industries that you can track through ETFs. And the great thing about them is you're not putting all your eggs on one stock, two stocks or three stocks, you have a basket of stocks. And I think when you're playing the long-term strategy, that is a great way of doing them. Get yourself a basket of diversified 
um, stocks, which will mean you're not uh, dependent on one going really well. So underlying asset class is really important. And then diversification in a buy and hold strategy is also really important. And, and I think that's that's a great way of thinking about it and looking about it if you want a passive approach. Right. But what about those investors that prefer the active approach, right? And, uh, you know, the stats aside and things like that, there are still investors who want to try and beat the market and those sort of things. Yeah. So what are the, for them, what are the essentials to identifying good long-term plays? I know Warren Buffett used to like to, or does like to use the term moat, right? Identifying companies with big moats. But what else are, I guess, the key ingredients here to good long-term plays? Yeah, look, I think, I think being in the right sectors and industries is very important. And, and you might think, well, you know, how hard is that? I always want to be in growth areas, right? Areas that are almost, you know, irreversible. And I go back to a play called thematic investing, and that's in, in investing in global structural trends that are occurring in the economy, things that are almost irreversible, things that are happening regardless. So I think being in the right sector is very important. You don't want to be in dying sectors or dying industries. Um, for example, a perfect example is, you know, retail or bricks and mortar retail. You know, we know we're moving away from that. We know that essentially everything is moving online and most purchases are online. So I think picking that is, is essentially removing things first that you don't want to invest in. For example, another one for me is oil, right? So oil stocks are something I don't invest in because I know we're moving away from that. There might be some great companies within that, but if you look at this sector or industry, the globe is moving away from using oil as an ingredient for, for global, you know, global growth. So that's really important when you're looking at firstly identifying stocks and what i like to use is a top-down approach to, to, to identifying stocks so one look for a sector or region or, or an area of the world that's growing really quickly then try to look within a subsector of that industry um, and then try to pick a winner within that so that's really important you, you touched on modes modes is a really easy and simple way to start to look at stocks and really reduce the amount of choice that you have. You know, things like brand name are a good thing. Things like, you know, barriers to entry into an investment or a sector really protect that stock against it. And these are, they sometimes we think of them as complex things, um, but they are quite simple when we analyze them. And, and also look for companies that have stood the test of the time. You know, we know that, you know, the winners of the past tend to be, in most cases, not all the cases, tend to be around and winning all the time, particularly in this world that we're living in. But there are some essential tidbits. And I think having an active strategy in line with a passive strategy is the way to play it. And that's, again, goes back to diversification, not only across asset classes and stocks, but also across your strategy in terms of developing, you know, a long-term wealth creation plan. You know, Jack, just to follow up on the earlier point you were talking about, you know, like uh, company, uh, sectors like retail or oil or those kind of the, the ones that are on a arguably a structural decline. Um, yeah. Some would argue that they're, they've, they're priced well, right? They've got good PEs, very attractive at these levels. Um, what do you think about that? Because on one end, the argument would be that these are essentially value traps, right? Yes, the PE is attractive and things like that. And you get a good dividend yield, but for how long? But at the same time, if maybe if you're a short-term trader, there's an arbitrage opportunity there. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, possibly. I mean, look, I've been in the market for a long time. I can tell you that short-term trading is a very, very difficult game. 
um, you know, you're playing against hedge funds and big firms. You're also playing against robots now. Um, and it is a very difficult game. And I think when you look at just PEs, that's when you can fall into the value trap. Uh, and you, you brought that up really well. You know, they may appear as value because they're trading cheap compared to, you know, historical PEs or historical valuations. But you've got to ask yourself, what is happening to the world around them? You know, where is the growth going to play? And I'll bring up box and retail stores again. You know, that, that market share or that tradable addressable market is continuing to decline. We know that in the future, all purchases will be made online, right? Whether they are made there online, they also begin online, even if you go into a store. So that's where an investor must look at. And I think you go back again to the point is, well, you need to ask yourself, what is your time rise, a time horizon for an investment? And if you're trading in a short term, then yes, you can take advantage of this. And, and again, that becomes down to your own personal um, beliefs and, and what, you, what, you, what you want to do out of your investment. And that's an important part of investing. We need to understand what our goals are in order to identify the assets that we need for our goals. Um, yeah, so that, that's, an, that's a really good point that you bring up and one that we need to be wary of. All right, Jack, so prices don't always move up in a straight line, right? We've got uh, retracements, corrections, and crashes, to name the few. Um, how do you know when you're looking at particularly companies, right, that you should keep faith and hold in a company uh, instead of selling out of it? Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question. And that's, I guess, you know, the million-dollar question. And you don't always know. You can't you can't be sure about everything in, in, in markets. I think that's a really important thing that we need to understand, that, you know, no one can predict exactly what's going to happen. No one has a crystal ball. These are markets, you know, and they're 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 essentially, you know, they are a marketplace of buyers and sellers, and that's what determines price. I think there's a couple of key things that you need to understand. Earnings are a great way to look under the hood of a, of a company, because an earnings tells us where the company has been, and also gives us forecasts on where the company is going. It also is a great time for a company to reflect and tell us exactly where they are in play. So earnings are always a great way to either solidify or change your decision on a company. I think that's really important um, and looking under the hood. Now, it doesn't require complex analysis, um, but, you know, earnings growth, you know, what they're forecasting and how they've gone in the last couple of quarters are a great way to to really try to predict what they're going to do in the future. You know, they say history doesn't repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. And I think that's really important. The other way to work out when you want to sell, particularly with winners, is it can be sometimes difficult. But if before you get into an investment, try to give yourself a preconceived idea of what would be a good enough return for you. And that can take some of the psychology and emotion out of it. So, you know, selling, you know, putting in a sell order um, in the market when you're satisfied or happy with the gains that you've made from there can be a great way to take that emotion. Um, and then you've got to constantly ask yourself is, why did I buy this stock or asset class? <clears throat> why did I believe the, in the growth of this underlying company or the management board? And then constantly asking myself, is it still the same? Do I still believe in the growth prospects of this company right now in this current time, in this current industry, in this current economic environment? Um, there's no 
complete science to it. And that's what we must understand psychology first um, before we get into that. And you will make mistakes. Sometimes you will sell winners too early and sometimes you will hold on losers too long. But that's just investing. Um, it's not always easy and it's definitely not as straightforward. But there are some little things that you can do to help you um, make those decisions. And of course, there are experts all around the world and there's constant information and research around that can assist you with that also. I know you've already alluded to some of this, but what are some of the key signs, I guess, to because when you have, let's say, a loser in your portfolio, right, there's something that's really come down. Um, you have the opportunity to average down, right? Or on the flip side, you could exit and sell out. How do we balance this? And maybe what are the key signs to watch out for between choosing whether to uh, to buy more and average down or to exit and sell out of that uh, that company? Yeah, that's a... Again, you're asking the big questions these days. <laughs> Look, averaging, you know, there, there are areas, that, there are some people out there that say, you know, when your stock is down 20%, you know, you should average down. And when you, you know, you goes down a further 10%, you should average down. I'm, I'm not a big proponent of that. I think it's a horses for courses basis in a specific. I go back to, I hate to repeat, but I, sometimes the market will misprice assets and they won't see what you're necessarily seeing in terms of the growth rate of the company. And I think that's a great reason for you to average down, specifically when I'm looking at specific stocks. I think it's, you know, you've got to treat it on, on, a, on a course for course basis. But my opinion is, is that you should allow yourself enough time to see if the market is seeing what you're seeing. Ask yourself, do you still believe in the prospects of the company and are the same reasons that you entered into that trade still there? And that should be your reason to averaging down. Now, like you said, sometimes things don't go in a straight line. What I do also like to do is if it does report and have another revenue an earnings report and the market still sells it down, that tends to me for me to be a sign of okay, I should cut my losses and I should move on. And the one thing we must understand about holding losses for too long is that there is also an opportunity cost to that because your money is is finite. You don't have an infinite amount of money. So if you're holding something that you shouldn't be holding, you're missing out on something else in your portfolio. There's no direct answer for you in here, but I think it goes back to, well, are you in a good asset class and is it warranting you averaging down? What I will say on the flip side is what we, I think the greatness of an investor is the actual ability to average up, Prashant. So that's when you know you're starting to get a grasp on psychology because to buy an asset or a stock higher than you initially bought it because your position is being reaffirmed either by an earnings report or a growth report or a sector report or an economic recovery, that is also a good sign that your psychology of investing is in the right shape. Jack, on the flip side of that, uh, not the averaging up but the averaging down part is, as yeah. earlier we talked about, uh, you mentioned the question of when we sell winners and crystallize those gains, right? And you noted earlier something about along the lines of whether it's at a point where we are satisfied with those gains or whether we have achieved the goals that we set out for for the particular investment. Um, but it's yeah. also easier said than done, right? Because once you start seeing those gains, you may be like, mm, maybe I want to keep this longer and longer. And yeah. maybe there's a there's a new thesis here for the average investor. What is the what is considered a good gain, right? For perspective here, because sometimes people are thinking they want hundred percent returns on a on a particular stock uh, play or a, a long term investment. 
Um, what is realistic in today's terms and how would you go about deciding when it's time to sell a winner? Yeah, um, look, I'm of the opinion, you know, we're, we're, we're living in this environment now where it's, you know, right here, right now, and you're right. People, people's idea of gains have far exceeded what markets should return. Now, for me, anywhere between on a year, on a, on, a, on a stock portfolio, anywhere between 10 to 15% is a very, very good year uh, for stock. So that should be your first proponent. Anything above that is, you know, cream or cream on the cake. When it comes to single stocks and looking at exiting, yep, yeah, having predefined points, but you're right, we get emotional and, we, and we, want, we want more. I mean, I always go back to valuations, where is it valued compared to its peers? You know, how much of a dominance is it in the sector? Um, but for me, if I've, you know, on a single stock, if I've started, if I'm in the double digits on a stock and I feel like there's other sectors, areas that I could be benefiting more from, that's when I'm starting to look at, you know, selling down. Now, you don't always have to sell all of it down. You know, you could sell half um, and let the other ride, you know, therefore, you know, you've kind of, you kind of, you know, Got got your initial capital back or whatever it is, but you know, and this is this is the point I will make. We you can't you can't have one figure. You can't say if I'm up twenty percent on a stock, I'm going to get out because that's not the best way for uh, looking at stocks or investing. You must treat it from a chase by case basis. But for me personally, if I'm in the double digits, I'm starting to look at okay, what's my strategy? Do I want to continue to be in this stock or do I want to start looking for exits again? Go back and ask yourself, are the same plays in place that you got into that investment? Has it run too far? And can you find better working capital for your money? And they will start to lend you down better and better decisions, but you won't always make the right ones. So earlier we mentioned uh, cheap PEs uh, or low PEs anyway, low price earnings ratios, yeah. which indicate sometimes that a stock can be cheap. I want to flip the conversation over to now to high PEs, which is something that we see uh, of the more desirable stocks in today's landscape. A lot of the digital players, a lot of the work from home plays, a lot of the unicorns have very high, some even sometimes hundreds, uh, uh, PEs in the hundreds, uh, where else you've got the yeah. big trillion dollar club that are, have PEs in around the 30s now, which is still considerably high. At what yeah. point do price earnings ratios start uh, because it, 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 we shouldn't be using the PE alone, right? It, sh it's, it should be used in a combination of other metrics as well. But at what point does a high price earnings ratio for a particular company start getting you a little worried? Yeah, I mean, I've heard this parallel a lot in the last couple of years. And I think you, you did allude to the dot-com era and, and, you know, some of the high PEs that we're looking at. I think we need to understand that we're in a very different environment mm -hmm. to the dot-com area. Um, and the first environment is interest rates are very low um, and they look like they're going to stay low for, for, for at least, you know, the next couple of years. So, the, you know, when, when money is so cheap, you know, you can borrow it for less and then you can invest that in growth. And that's why, you know, you get some of the high PEs that you're carrying at the moment. The other point that you brought up, um, Roshan, is, you know, digital or digitizing. We are digitizing very, very quickly. And if you look at some of the ones that carry a lot of PEs, they tend to be tech firms. Um, you know, they tend to be around SaaS or, or IT or the Internet of Things or chips. And the growth is enormous because we're still kind of in those early days of those growth, growth stocks. You, you even mentioned work from home. I mean, we've only been working from home for 12 to 18 months. 
you know, in fact, we're probably going to be working home, from home for the next 20 to 30 years. So you can imagine the growth that is going to occur in, you know, sideshows. So, look, PEs are a very, very valuable way of looking at a company, <laughs> but we must take them in the context. But I agree with you. Some of these companies have run too hard. You're not even running on PEs. They're running 30 or 40 price to sales. Um, I don't think it's a fair comparison to compare us to the dot-com boom because we are in a very, very different environment and we are in a very high growth tech digitizing environment. So you can't take it in in alone. It should be taken with a number of factors, um, but it shouldn't, it shouldn't drive you from investing, particularly in that earlier part where we talked about broad-based ETFs. Because what we know about something like the S&P 500 is you're right. It's historic analyzer average return has been around 10%. Now, whether it can, you know, whether we have a bear market tomorrow, you know, you've got to think that a smart investor will probably get those gains over the next 30, 40 years when you look at some of those companies in the S&P 500. So very different times to the dot-com bubble. Um, and, and you can't just take PE on its own anymore. I don't think it's the best way of looking at, at, at investing, particularly in the long term. Right. And uh, as you noted, Jack, you know, uh, from its inception to, uh, in 1926 to 2018, the S&P 500 has returned a historical, a historic annualized return, uh, average return of around 10%, 10 to 11% or thereabouts. Yeah. Um, now that said, its current PE is over 30 times, um, far above the mean of 16 times historically based, yeah. which again, it brings parallels of the dot-com bubble and things like that. Sure. And as uh, we no noted earlier, history may not repeat itself, but it certainly does rhyme, Jack. So what do you think yeah. are key lessons that investors should learn from the dot-com bubble, especially in relation to the current environment that we're in right now? Yes, we know, it may not be a, a direct parallel to the dot-com bubble, but with valuations this high, what should we take away from the dot-com bubble and apply to our lives going forward? Yeah, I mean, you got, you, the, the first thing we need to understand about the S&P 500 is you know, it, its structure has changed significantly over the last 10 to 15 years. Um, you know, it's more weighted towards tech. Um, you know, I think 20 to 25% of the S&P 500 is now made up tech, maybe a little bit more. And if you look at that concentration of that 20 to 25%, what you will also see is that you're very heavily concentrated in your big cap tech stocks. And that's your Googles, your Facebooks, your Amazons, your Netflix, et cetera. So they make up a big portion of, of that weighting of that overweight within the S&P 500. What comparisons should we take from the dot-com bubble? None, to be honest with you, because it's a very different type of environment. You've got to remember the dot-com bubble was the evolution or the invention of the internet. Um, you know, this was a fairly new mechanism for global growth, a fairly new mechanism for the spreading of information, a fairly new mechanism for the spreading of news, for connections, for communication, for contact. Um, it was the internet. Think about what the internet has done for the globe and think about seeing it for the first time or, or seeing companies. So we got a little bit ahead of ourselves, but the companies that we see now in the S&P 500 aren't the companies that we saw in the dot-com bubble. They actually have earnings. They actually have growth. They have these sales. They've got great boards. So to be honest with you, and I, um, I, I apologize for blunting your question, I don't think it's a comparison. These are very, very different times, um, and these companies are very, very, di very different. And you, go, you talk about the S&P 500, you know, if the last 110 years of those things have just told us, you know, 
the strategy is you buy the S&P 500 and you buy it all the time and you hold it and that's a great long-term strategy. And I don't think that changes in this environment regardless of where PEs are at the moment. So, you know, can we get a movement in the market? Could we see a crash tomorrow? Could we see a retraction of 5 to 10 to 15%? Sure, that happens all the time. But if you want to talk about long-term investing and this is what, you know, this investment, this interview is about, then long-term investment should tell you you shouldn't really care. Um, you should treat it as a chance to buy. So we often bring up the, the, the dot-com bubble. I don't believe it's a fair comparison for some of the reasons that I've just spoken about. It's just, it's a different time. You know, we've evolved very quickly over that time. You have a bunch of new investors in the market, retail, institutional, you have a lot of passive. Um, you have a lot of sovereign wealth funds around the world that have come into the market. So I think it's a very different one. Okay, let me rephrase that question then, Jack. Um, in in sure. no relation to the environment that we are in today then, are there any lessons yeah. that you would take from the dot-com bubble overall? Just specifically from that time, uh, maybe things like irrational exuberance, things like that. Are there yeah. any yeah. particular lessons yeah. from that time? Absolutely. So let's talk about, so dot-com was the internet. I think the one lesson we need to understand, particularly about new innovation and new technological innovation, is that sometimes, well, a lot of the times, particularly when you see new tech, we overestimate what it can do in the short term and we kind of underestimate what it can do in the long term. And that's what we certainly saw in a dot-com bubble. So we overestimated the breadth of this new technology could have. Um, the other thing that we need to understand from the dot-com bubble is, is, is the financials don't lie. And I think we were looking past a lot of the financials within the dot-com bubble in, in hope of that growth. Um, so they are really important. And the biggest, I think, example is you don't really know who's going to be the winners in a new industry. So don't put all your eggs in one basket, you know, diversify because, um, you know, some of the guys that we thought were going to be the winners in the dot-com bubble, you know, the, the Netscapes or I'm trying to think of that social media one that, that, that went under aren't necessarily one. So be diversified. I think are these two big lessons you can see from the dot-com bubble and understand that crashes are just part of markets. Um, and that's what they do. And, and they will always be around. All right, Jack. So all that's in and done. Um, when we take a look at the current situation with all the liquidity and all of that, uh, prices and, evalu and valuations are still vital to take into consideration, right? Especially with long-term investors, we want to keep this in mind. Uh, when we look at the dot-com bubble in particular, the Nasdaq took 15 years to surpass its dot-com high of 5,000 points. Microsoft took 17 years from that part to surpass its dot-com market cap of 600 billion. I mean, now it's 2 trillion, but it took that 17 years for it to recover from that point. As long-term investors, how do you think we should think about value especially as we see record high after record high in the U.S. markets these days? Yeah, first thing what we must understand is that there's, there's a natural asset price inflation normally, right? So regardless of, you know, returns or revenue or earnings, what we know over the last 150 years of modern day investing is that assets tend to go up regardless. And you look at property prices, right, you know, in Europe, they've gone up for 150 years. In Malaysia, they have. In you know, the US, they have. That's just natural appreciation. As you get wage growth and population growth, there's a natural appreciation of asset classes. So we have to factor that in when we look at you know, the $600 billion market cap of Microsoft. We often look at the parallels of the NASDAQ and it taking 15 to 17 years, or 15 years to get back. We've got to understand that you know, everything is technology now. 
You know, back then, it wasn't all about tech. My, my point here is what I'm trying to say is for the last 150 years, asset prices of most asset classes have appreciated up. So remember that when you're looking at investing, first take that into perspective, that you have a natural asset, asset growth uh, in most times. Um, and then, you know, always look at the charts over a long term and, and you'll see that, you know, you, you will see new winners come into the market and new losers come into the market and diversifying is a good way of looking at it. If you have all your eggs in Microsoft or Amazon or whatever stock, that's when you can you can get hit very hard. It can be difficult psycholo psychologically for people to buy at highs, but if you're constantly worried about that, then you might never get into the market uh, at this point in time. And I go back to my point that we made at the start. It's all about, you know, and when you're looking at long-term and diversification, it's about time in the market and not timing the market. I really believe that investing in the stock market when done correctly, and it doesn't have to be, you know, brain surgery, is the best wealth creator in the world, right? Because it's easy to get into, it's liquid. You don't have to have an enormous amount of money to start off with. You can do it from anywhere around the world and you have unlimited choice. Um, and if you compare it to a great asset class like property, that can be quite difficult. You've got to go get a loan. You've got to have a big deposit. It's not very liquid. So, you know, and that's where I fear some people, you know, will miss out because they're feeling like they're going to buy something at the high. And, and you might sometimes, but you know, that's just investing. You've got to be prepared for it. I just want to ask you a little bit about liquidity, though, because that's part of the reason why we're seeing such um, incredible numbers, right, in the stock market in terms of the PEs, yeah. but also the kind of risk on appetite that we're seeing as well. Um, but yeah. at some point, the Fed will start tapering and rates will start rising. Yeah. With that, when that happens, won't we see a correction and valuations readjust? Yeah, sure. I mean, if. <laughs> Here's what we must understand also. Like you're seeing corrections all the time. You might not be seeing it in the border index, but you're seeing corrections within sectors or industries within that border index. You know, we saw value, you know, being corrected, you know, during the, the pandemic. What we must understand is that 2008, 2008 sorry, two, at the end of 2019, we saw a 20% correction in the market. You know, 2020, because of the pandemic, we saw a 30 to 40. Sure, we have recovered after that. But you're, you're seeing, we're always seeing mini corrections or valuations come off on certain sectors and certain industries. Tech was a perfect example. You know, from from December last year or, or Feb to, 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 to June, you know, we saw a correction in tech. So we're all, always seeing these corrections. What I can tell you about the market is whether rates are high or low, they'll adjust to it and they'll move to the right asset classes. If you're going to try to pick corrections or crash in crashes, it's completely impossible. Um, the Fed will have to taper at some stage and at some stage uh, rates will rise. I can't see it anytime soon, but what I can tell you is the market is stronger than that, it'll adjust. And yes, we may see pullbacks and that would be a great chance, a time I think maybe to dollar cost averaging. But if you're gonna sit there and try to predict these things, I go back to that point of point, you probably never be invested in stocks. There will always be market movements. There will always be adjustments. And just because we're not seeing the indexes adjusting or they're going on to new highs, we are seeing underlying adjustments in sectors within those. 
all this just, I guess, exemplifies the point, Jack, that stock picking is difficult, right? It's not an easy thing to do. And it may not be for everyone, but being involved in the equity market is still important nonetheless, right? You want to get that tap into that growth for your long-term uh, prosperity and all of that. So for the normal investor, as Warren Buffett has alluded to, index investing could be a vital proponent of that. But even with that, you could run the risk of buying at too high a valuation and things like that, which is where uh, a great long-term strategy comes into play, which is dollar cost averaging, right? Which is essentially the the act of regularly buying into an asset irrespective of the price over the, lo- the long term. Um, are you a fan of dollar cost averaging and what are your overall thoughts on it? Yes, I'm a big fan of dollar cost averaging. I think it is a fantastic strategy for someone to employ. You know, people often say, when should I buy the market? Is it too high? You know, is it low enough? My opinion is you buy it all the time. And what do I mean by this? I mean, you know, if you're out there and you've got a job and for some reason, you know, you've got, you save $100 one month, then I believe you should buy the market then. And if the next mark, if the next time you say, you say $50, then I should, I believe you should buy market then. You know, I believe you should be constantly building that snowball effect over time. And, and what that will do, that will just, that will just let it play it out because sometimes you buy it lower and sometimes you buy it higher. Um, so when I'm looking at a passive indexing strategy, which I think is a great way to build a great portfolio, forget price, constantly be buying all the time. And you know, that, that gives you, that essentially gives you dollar cost averaging up and down, but it also is a a passive way. And if you, you know, get a bonus or, I don't know, you save $20 on your electricity bill or $20 on your gas bill or whatever it is. And I know it sounds like a, a little small of my, a small amount of money, but it's, you know, that's how wealth is created. It's created over time. Um, and predicting what's going to happen on a day-to-day basis is very difficult. I often say to people, it's easy to predict what's going to happen in 10 years rather than what's going to happen tomorrow, particularly in investing. And with indexing, what we know is that most major markets, most major markets around the world, regardless of corrections, tend to go up over time. And I don't think that changes whether we're in, you know, a low liquidity, a high liquidity, a low interest rate or higher trade environment because they've seen all those environments before. And that is my opinion on indexing. And Jack, when, you, when we talk about dollar cost averaging, are there any particular, uh, the nitty-gritty points that you'd like to highlight, any do's and don'ts when it comes to this? Yeah, yeah, it's really important. Um don't try to be don't try to be too smart with it just have a designated time or a point in your calendar where you do it um because if you start to think about oh should i buy tomorrow or should i buy today that's when you start to get errors or, or you don't follow the strategy dollar cost averaging is just about buying regardless of where the price is and averaging and building your snowball over time Jack, uh, thank you so much for your time. Always a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you and good luck to everybody out there. I was speaking with Jack Cousy, Fund Manager and Director of Australian Financial Services Licensee, VFS Group. Now remember, with all possible investments, you have to do your own homework into the assets, keeping your risk profile and financial goals in mind. And with that, you've been listening to Ring It and Sense, the show that's all about personal finance. I'm Roshan Kanisen for BFM 89.9. Ring It and Sense on BFM 89.9. The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. 
BFM 89.9, The Business Station.